The first time I ever saw a dead body, I was 12 years old and I was on a beach for a picnic with my family and another family. And we were doing the kind of things you do on a day like that um, when you're at the beach for a picnic and the sun was shining and we had come out of the water uh, and had, had started to eat and there were two people who had been drinking and they wandered down to our section of the beach and they were loud and splashing uh, oblivious to anything around them the way that people in their conditions sometimes are. And so these two people were taking up space that nobody could help but notice. And then all of a sudden, there was one. And there was one, and she was splashing and shouting and calling and feeling around for her husband. Uh, and we stood on the beach and prayed and looked. My mom was very pregnant with my little brother, but there was nothing we could do um, I was 11 or 12 and too small to go find this guy. Uh, so we, we looked around and we shouted for help and two college age guys came and drug him out of the water. And he'd been underwater for eight minutes and not breathing for 12. And by the time they pulled this body out, it had turned this deep purple hue that mocked any request for life um, long past. And so we stood there and my mom and her friends started CPR on this body and we prayed, man, did we pray. And we asked God to bring life back where there was death and it is a crazy person's prayer to look at skin and bones that have given up on life. Um, and his wife, it turned out, she, she stood there and sobbed with us, uh, with her arms around us. And I just, I remember this, this circle of people just around this man and then seeing him twitch and gasp and vomit water out and all of a sudden seeing life rush back in to skin and bones to what had been a purple shell. There's some things that you can't unsee once you've seen them. I don't remember the guy's face or what he looked like, but I'll never forget that color. It was the color of death to me. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget when that color slowly faded out of that body and life came back. And I knew at 12 years old, I had just seen a dead person come to life. There was two, and then there was one, and then there was two again, and this guy got a second chance. I've since been in the moment of people dying and the moments after, uh, the moments before, and I share that story to give us a vivid picture of what God means when his word says, you were dead, but now you're alive. The authors of the Bible use this language often because they were so convinced of the reality that they were dead bodies. There was no life left. There was no breath. There was no living to be done. And then when, when Christ came, he breathed new life. And so they use this dead to life terminology often in the New Testament. When Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 15, he wrote it to a small but growing group of people that were calling themselves a church. And he wrote it and he screamed, you were dead. And I'm looking at a house full of dead people, people that were dead, that were made back to life through Jesus. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of, these world, of this world. And the ruler and the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us 
following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. You were dead. I was dead. You were dead, like there was no breath. It was just like that man on the beach. I was dead. But God, in his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. I want to define mercy for us. Mercy, it's door number three. I'm, I'm Eli here at K2, the church. Welcome this morning. Um, we've been making a big deal about some things that God makes a big deal about. So we started off with stewardship, then we moved on to reconciliation. Today we're making a big deal about mercy, and I want to define what I mean when I say that. The first time I heard this definition, I was kind of like, is that really the definition of mercy? But as I look deeper into the word, which I'm not going to do today, um, I'm pretty convinced here's what, here's what we mean when we say mercy. Mercy is when someone with the resources to meet a need sees someone who has a need but doesn't have the resources to meet it. And so they give their resources to meet that need. It's when somebody has something I need but I don't have and they offer it to me and then I have. So God who is rich in mercy because I was dead and God had life God who is rich in mercy saw me in my need and my brokenness and my desperation and said, you can't do this on your own and offered me what he had and that's mercy. And so as we follow God in that, we see people in need. And if we have the resources to meet those needs, we offer them those resources. Um, so we're moving through this series called Let's Make a Big Deal. And again, we just, we want to make a big deal about these things. We really believe that these things are things that God makes a big deal about. Um, two years ago, Lad Chapman said it like this. He said, where do you come from? We come from a land of mercy and things are just different here. And that picture of a people that comes from a land of mercy has stuck with me because I come from a place where I have experienced mercy and I know what it feels like to live mercy and to get mercy, to receive mercy. And it's out of that that I'm able to say to people, hey, I know what mercy is like. Check this out. For me, it's a deeply personal subject because Jesus has been walking me through what it looks like to follow him um, over the last 12 years, but in this area of mercy, probably more in the last five or six years, uh, as God has just really been calling my heart out um, into the gospel and to realize that I, I don't just get the gospel, but I'm part of the gospel and then I get to live the gospel out. I love the picture Dave's been drawn out lately of a, a person stuck in a prison cell. Um, and when Jesus died for the sins of the world, that door was open. But a lot of people stay in their cell. They don't, they don't realize that. They don't, they don't know that they have one step into the land of mercy, one step from death to life. Um, for me, following Jesus has boiled down to this saying over the last couple months. Um, my wife and I have been looking at each other and just saying it. The gospel is hard. <laughs> the gospel is hard. That's been the reality of my life. Um, on one hand, on one hand, it's not that hard. On one hand, it's just receiving. It's just understanding that Jesus 
didn't ask us to come to him, but he actually came to us, like we talked about last week, so that we could be reconciled with God. And it's just receiving his mercy. But then to follow him into that, just like he, he paid a cost for me to experience mercy, I pay a cost to share mercy with other people. Um, and so for us, just day after day this summer, uh, it's been this, this, again, this phrase, the gospel is hard. There's one place, I know I've shared this before, but it, it like wrecks my life. There's one place in the Bible that we're called to imitate Jesus, to follow Jesus in. Um, over and over again in every book of the New Testament, follow Jesus in suffering. Um, God's got a great plan for your life. It's gonna be amazing. He does and it is, but that plan looks suspiciously like a cross. And as you read the New Testament, you start to turn page after page and after a while, you might begin to wonder, do I really want this? Because it looks suspiciously like a cross and that's where God leads. When you understand that God is asking you to look like him so that others can find him, that you, church, are God's plan for the world, that you're it, that we're it together, that the churches in this valley and in this world were God's plan to bring his mercy to other people. When you understand that and you start to live in this reality that the gospel is hard, it starts to mess your world a little bit. Um, a couple of years ago, I had this experience where I grabbed my Bible and I grabbed my cup of coffee. Uh, I meet with God in my backyard often. That's like one of my favorite spots. Um, so I grabbed my Bible, I grabbed my coffee and I walked out to the backyard to meet with God and I sat down, I put my Bible there. Um, and God talks to me kind of like a bro sometimes. I don't know why he does that. Um, but this all happened in a couple of seconds, so I'm stretching it out so you can understand. But I sat down and Jesus across the table from me said, hey, good to see you here. And I'm like, hey, good to see you here too. And then he said, hey, I, I've missed you. Where have you been? And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, I've been waiting out here for a while, but you, you haven't come out for about a week and a half now. And I realized like, oh, like I just stopped meeting with Jesus out here. And so this was a couple of years ago and it just struck me that like I'd been meeting with him every day and then I just stopped and did some other stuff for a while. And if you've ever been stood up on a date or anywhere else, you know what that feels like when you're waiting in a restaurant and you're waiting and then all of a sudden you're just pretending that you plan to be there on your own and so you're kind of shuffling things around a little bit differently. Um, it, would, it would be weird for me. Like if I was waiting to meet my wife at Starbucks and she said, hey, I'll be there at three o'clock and I was there at three and waited till 3.42 and finally said, hey, she's not coming. If I went home and she was in the kitchen doing dishes, it would be weird and you would think something was wrong with me if I'm just like, hey, honey, how was your day? You know, no, I'd be like, hey, where were you? I was waiting for you. And that's the sense I got when I went to meet with Jesus about four years ago with my coffee and my Bible. He was going, hey man, where were you? I've been waiting for you. So I wanna kick the day off with that thought. Is Jesus waiting for you? Are you regularly meeting with Jesus? Where in your life, in your house, in your coffee shop is Jesus waiting going, like hey, I wonder, I wonder if they're gonna show up today. You know, or should I just pretend like I'm here by myself? Here's crazy. You want to hear crazy? Jesus will wait for you. 
Did you catch that part in my story? Jesus said to me, yeah, I've been waiting out here for a week and a half. Jesus, the king, the one who created, the one who sustains all life, every breath, every second, was waiting for me in my backyard and he'll wait for you in the places you meet with him too. He'll wait for you here at K2. He'll wait with you at other churches. He'll wait in your coffee shop. He'll wait in the mountains. He'll wait in your living room, in your back room, backyard. He will wait for you. That's crazy to me. That, that just blows my mind. He is so about pursuing our hearts that he will pursue our hearts wherever they can be found. But don't miss this. While he'll wait for you in your house, in your place of comfort, as I read through the New Testament, as I get to know Jesus, as his spirit lives and grows inside of me and starts pulling me out, I have discovered that that's not where he lives. See, there's this place in the Bible where Jesus knows that his time is short and so he's telling story after story. And I take a little bit of liberty with this, but it's, um, he's overlooking a hill or he's on a hill overlooking Jerusalem and he's, he's remembering things with his disciples. And so I could picture them remembering things. And he says, hey, remember that time I was hungry? And maybe they thought of what for us is John chapter four where Jesus meets a woman at the well and his disciples go to get food and hours later they return and they've been two days without food. Maybe they remember that. And Jesus says, hey, remember when I was hungry? And they're like, yeah. He says, yeah, and you guys got me food. And they're like, yeah. And Peter's probably like, well, I carried the most food. Um, so maybe they thought that. And then he goes, hey, remember that time I was thirsty? And they said, yeah, that's been like three years. We've been traveling and backpacking and going from town to town. We've been thirsty for three years. And he's like, yeah, and that time you got me water. And they're, they're going, oh, yeah. There were many of those times. I remember that time, Jesus. And then maybe one of them's like, hey, remember that time? We were in the boat and you came walking on the water and we we're like, what is that? And you start dancing around and remember that? And they're all like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then he goes, hey, remember that time you found me naked and without clothes and you brought me clothes? And they're like, wiggity, what? You know, and they look at each other and they're like, I might've been sick that day. I don't really remember that. Um, and then he goes, hey, remember that time I was in prison and you came and served me? And they look at each other again and they're like, do you think this is like a real memory or is he telling another one of those parable thingamajiggers? Like, what's going on? Because they don't remember that either. And then Jesus, in probably the clearest picture we have of what it looks like to stand before a king and a judge, Jesus says, hey, in, in the clearest picture we have, he connects eternity with how we treat him. And he says, hey, truly, I say to you, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you've done to me. And I tell you too, truly, whatever you didn't do to the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. And in these simple words, I understand. Jesus doesn't live in my house. Jesus doesn't live in our church buildings. Jesus doesn't live in my favorite coffee shop. He'll wait for me in my kitchen. He'll wait in my backyard. I meet him in the mountains, but he doesn't live there. 
He lives on the streets and he lives in the neighborhoods and he lives in places where people have hard lives because Jesus lives in people and with people. Because the God that we give our lives to follow is a God who gave his life for people and people have deep significance to him. And not just people, but hurting people, people who have had hard lives, people with no advocates, people who are in too deep, people who are drowning in addiction, people whose worlds are falling apart, people whose hearts are suffocating. Those are the people that Jesus is close to. And it's crazy, man, because he doesn't say, whatever you do to the least of these, you do for me or because of me or with me. He says, hey, the way that you treat these people That's me. He said, you do it to me. What are we gonna do with that, church? Let me remind you, I'm looking at a room full of people who were dead. Hearts that had stopped beating, skin that had turned purplish gray, dead people that God said, life again and made alive. We are people who have received mercy. And so we follow a king that leads us into mercy. We follow a king that leads us to people. According to this passage, there's places we can walk to from here and stare Jesus in the eye. There's places we can walk to from here and offer Jesus food and water and clothing and shelter. There's places we can go in our city if we would just choose to join him. And we will be judged for how we treat See, this passage isn't that fluffy or feel-good stuff. Like, we will be judged for how we treat people that God cares about. Instead of waiting for him to come to our house, which he'll do, he'll, he'll do. He is so patient. He is so kind and so good. He will meet you at your house. He'll meet you at church. He'll meet you in your coffee shop, and he'll continue to meet you there because he's after your heart. But there eventually comes a time for us when we wanna follow him that we start listening to the pull of the spirit and we go to his neighborhoods. And let me tell you, because I've lived it this summer, the gospel is hard. The gospel is hard, but if you've had a second chance, if you come from the land of mercy, if you've been brought back from the dead, then you have a fire burning in your heart. And I believe that this is true. If you've been brought back from the dead, For some of us, it's just a spark, but you have a fire burning in your heart that's only satisfied and only finds its rest when you bring mercy to others. When you take from your enough so that others can have some. When you join Jesus on the sidewalks and in his neighborhoods, in the places that he hangs out and you join him in the gospel and become part of the gospel. When you join him and find him at the place where mercy-starved people hang out. He doesn't call us to mercy so that we'll feel guilty when we eat a cheeseburger or drive by a man holding a sign. This is who he is. He is mercy. So I know now that some of you are wondering, like, is crazy Eli talking about spiritual mercy that we're supposed to be offering or physical mercy? Is this, is this need? So I just want to go back to the definition again. Mercy is when somebody has the resources adequate to meet a need and somebody else has a need. And that person with the resources adequate to meet a need says, hey, I have this and you need this. That's how we live out mercy because that's how God lived it out for us. 
So if your addicted neighbor doesn't have money for shoes and clothes for his kid, mercy looks like bringing shoes and clothes for his kid. And mercy also looks like sharing what God has done in your life so that he can understand that God can heal all sorts of things. Last Sunday, my wife was in the lobby doing connections and she shared this story with me after she got home. Um, it's a great story. The two people came walking in and, and if you guys are here today, I just wanna say thank you because you've blessed me. So you might hear yourself in this story. Thank you because you've blessed me. Um, two people walked in, one of them had no shoes on and I was jogging through the lobby to get here on time and I noticed like, that dude's got no shoes. I'd like to stop and talk to him. Um, so I didn't have time because I had to be here. So I came here and my wife saw somebody and probably thought, that guy's got no shoes, I'm gonna talk to him. So she did and in that conversation he said, hey, I don't have any shoes. Do you know where I could get shoes? And somebody right next to my wife said, hey, I have shoes in my car, why don't you come out and get some? So he walked out and he went home with a pair of flip-flops. Um, yeah, a pair of flip-flops on his feet. And then the girl he was with said, hey, where can I get one of those cups? And my wife said, like, like, what kind of cup? And she said, well, it says K2 on it. It's a mug. And Lindsay knew right what she was talking about. And she said, oh, yeah, one of these. And the girl said, yeah, can I have one of those? Everybody in rehab's got one of those mugs. <laughs> I'm so glad you find that funny, too, because... You know what? Everybody at City Hall doesn't have one of these mugs. Everybody in the businesses around downtown don't have one of these mugs, but everybody in rehab's got one. Yeah! I want to be part of a church that brings mugs and shoes to people. That's what I love about K2 is I see us being a church that goes forward to Jesus' neighborhood bringing simple stuff like mugs and shoes and the message of mercy because we were once dead. Here's the truth. Jesus says to me, look bro, come to my neighborhood because he cares about the people in his neighborhood but also because he cares about my heart equally because he cares about my heart. He actually believes his own sayings, things like he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And following Jesus is declaring war on the things in our heart that are against him. Following Jesus is doing battle with our own selfish desires. It's so easy to look at the world and talk about the brokenness in the world, but following Jesus is also looking in our own heart and declaring war on the things that keep us from living like him. And that's why we practice mercy. Mercy is a tool that God uses to shape us into his image. I um, was coaching soccer yesterday and one of, my, one of my best players ran down to shoot a goal. Another player ran out to the side passed a perfect shot and there was a sprinkler in the middle of my field that was broken so it was shooting up a little so my player's running in and he stopped at that sprinkler and he went this way then he went around by the time he got to the ball it was way too late 
And I feel like that's what we do so often in our lives. We, we, Jesus comes in and we're like, oh man, I'm gonna pour out. And we start going and then we go, oh, oh, mercy's hard. Oh, the gospel is hard, like I'm gonna get all wet. You know, we stop and, and we try to navigate around this stuff and we try to figure out how to do it without getting dirty and without having to pay a cost. But mercy has a cost, man. It's always got a cost. The gospel is hard. But it's beautiful and it's, it's a beautiful king that we follow. So mercy is given to the other, but it's also given to our own hearts. I have this picture of this thing that's happened in my own life lately, um, probably over a four-week period, and Jesus gave me this picture, and it's, as soon as he gave it to me, I'm like, oh, that's me. That's, that's so accurate. And it's this picture of a crazy-looking dude standing in front of a door, and he's charging and hitting his head into that door as hard as he could. And it's me. I look a little closer, and I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> awesome. And so we have the door of mercy right here because we're making a big deal about mercy. Um, so if you can picture like somebody just charging and hitting their head in my, my vision for myself, the other side of that door is Jesus and he's holding his finger on that thing. Just his little finger and in his hand, I can't really tell what kind of beverage he's holding but he's pretty much chilling there and he's holding his finger on that door and I'm out there just pounding my head against it for six years. Because there's a few things in my life that for six years I've been trying so hard to, to have and to do and to get past. So I'm out there just pounding against that door and Jesus is just holding his finger about against it. Because here's another truth about Jesus. He is pursuing your heart and he cares. And this is gonna blow your mind, man. <laughs> he cares more about your heart than he does even what you can do for him, than he does even about your future, than he does perhaps about anything else. Because on the other side of that door for me lies the things that God has created me to be and do. Things that are good, things that are right, things that I can do and I've been uniquely created to do for his kingdom. And Jesus is so committed to my heart that he'll sacrifice his kingdom at the expense of my heart. And so in this vision of mine, um, there I am pounding on this door and Jesus just opened it. Like two weeks ago, Jesus just opened the door to things that I've been wrestling with and struggling with for six years. Um, and man, that picture of just his commitment and his pursuit of our hearts, it's, it's crazy. It, it just blows my mind. So the door to mercy is kind of like that because we go through it and we pay a cost. And he's so committed to us. He's like, man, you gotta experience this. You gotta go through this. You gotta, you gotta do this. And until you do, like even the good things I have waiting for you, they're gonna, they're gonna continue to wait. About two days after he shared this with his disciples. Um, so two days after he said, hey, whatever you do for the least of these, you actually do to me. Two days later, he was in an upper room with the same group of men and he was sitting around and he took a 1,500-year-old ritual, what, what we now follow in, we call communion, um, but then it was the Passover and it was a 1,500-year-old spiritual practice, deeper than anything spiritually that we do as far as like historical and traditional. This had a history of significance and Jesus took this piece of bread and he said, hey, this bread 
which used to mean this. This is my body, broken for you. And then he took a glass of wine and he poured it into a simple cup. And he said, hey, in this, this wine, this now is my blood, which is gonna be poured out for you. Every time that you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Anamesis is the word that he uses for remembrance. Anamesis, and it's a word that carries action. It's a word that means to make real. So he says, every, every time you make this real, do this. Do this and remember me. When, whenever you make this real, this breaking and this pouring, and then just days later, broken, poured, given. He was. Where there was one, there was none. And because of his brokenness, a room full of people that had no breath gasped and twitched. And some of us vomited all kinds of nasty stuff and we breathed again. Because Jesus was broken and because mercy had a cost. Love laid down his own life so that we could breathe new life and invite the world into new. We're gonna celebrate the gospel again today by taking communion a little bit later at the end of the day. Um, but I, want, I wanted to connect this act of communion to God's act of mercy, to our act of living out the gospel, to our actions of looking Jesus in the eye and handing him a cup of water, of bringing Jesus' shoes and filling his neighborhood with mugs. Because uh, communion is where, where we joined together. Last week we came and we, we took it as a celebration of reconciliation, this idea that God came to earth and died for us and because of his great mercy, we could actually know him. And so we took communion and we said, God, thank you for being broken. Thank you for being poured. And some of you guys here today were reconciled last Sunday. Last Sunday, there's people in this room that were dead that came to life and celebrated that. And today as we, we take communion again, we come to this table as a group again and we come as people who have been made alive. And we come with the reminder that in Corinthians, Paul writes, whenever you do this, Paul writes and he quotes Jesus, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And just a chapter later, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ, broken. It's a significant shift in thinking for many of us to understand that God is calling us into something deeper than just meeting with him where he waits for us. And something deeper than just a thankfulness for the way he's given his life for us. But he's actually calling us into the gospel to participate in the gospel, to be broken, to be poured, to be given. But when you've experienced mercy, it's true, isn't it? When, when you've experienced mercy, when you've been brought from dead to life, 
You want to share that with others. You want to give that to other people. We're going to do a celebration of mercy today. Um, and before we do, we talked about stewardship the first, the first week in this series. Um, we talked about what it means to, to bring to God what is his. And we talked about how God has actually made us stewards. God has, God has put us in control and, of some things and God has given us in his great gentleness some, some options and asked us to steward his kingdom. So we're gonna, we're gonna take offering um, and then I'm gonna invite my friend Danielle Vaughn's up. Danielle has a huge heart for mercy, so it's super fitting that she would be coming up today. Uh, but as we, as we join in offering, um, in tithing and bringing back to God what he has given us to care for, um, again, this, this thing is an act of rebellion against our selfish natures. So as we pull out literally, um, whether we do this online or on the app or, or literally out of our wallets, when we take from what God has asked us to hold and we return that to him, we're declaring war on selfishness and brokenness. And we're saying, God, I'm gonna live in your kingdom. One of my favorite things about K2 is we take this treasure very seriously and we constantly ask God, how can we best use this? How can we best use the resources we have to show mercy to the people who do not have those? Because that's what mercy is. And here's the crazy thing. We have all we need as a church. We have everything that we need to show mercy to every person that God has called us to show mercy to. So Jesus, Jesus, thank you for being a God who came for us God, you didn't ask us to come to you. You didn't ask us to come find you. You came for us. You came and met us in our homes, in our living rooms, on our streets. And God, thank you also for being a God that doesn't let us just stay there, but that beckons us to the places where you live. God, I pray that you would take these resources that we offer today, God, and that you would use them to show mercy to people who have not experienced mercy. God, as we invite people to come know the king of mercy, God, would you bless what we, what we bring? In Jesus' name, amen.